29, where Paul tells believers and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord who's saved, whether it's uh, Old Testament saints or it's the New Testament, he says that uh, those whom he foreknew, that is God, he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then he says a little more, but he goes on to say that, that in this destiny, in what God is doing, that essentially he's working all things together for good, for those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose. And it's a difficult concept, I think, to, in, with limited minds, at least my limited mind, maybe not yours, but, but mine, uh, is a difficult concept to really grasp that God is so knowledgeable and so uh, omnipresent and omniscient that he is able to understand who would choose him before he even founds the world. That he knows the beginning from the end. And that in the fact that because he understands, it says that he who, whom he foreknew, so that everybody he knew that would choose him, and it's prognosco, so it's not just like he knew of that decision, but the idea that he, like intimate knowledge, that he knew that person. That everybody that he knew intimately, that that, that person would then receive him, he gave that person a destiny. Now, he didn't predestine people to hell, and he didn't predestine people to heaven. He foreknew who would choose him, and he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. With that, though, he then says, and this is why we have such a security, one of the reasons why we have such security in our salvation, he says that he's now working for anyone who has chosen him and that has been elected by, has anyone who has chosen God and been elected by God through their choice and their destiny, he says that he is now working every single event, all things. He's now working all things for good. He doesn't say all things are good, because they're not. But he says he's working all things for good for those who love him and who have been called by him. And to think that in all the things that are going on in our world, whether it's Ukraine or the Middle East, or local government, or our government, whatever authority is being exercised anywhere, whatever thought processes, whatever, that, that anything that is occurring in our world, that God is working it and weaving it in his sovereignty to bring you to your destiny. He's working it for you and for, for all who called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It's kind of a radical thought because we can't, we, we can't really operate that way. We can't necessarily even imagine that. But that's what he says. So in chapter 9, when he finishes up with chapter 8 and the promises and what can separate us from the love of God and so forth, in chapter 9, he begins to speak about his desire, well, essentially, who, who Israel is and the true Israel versus those who have rejected the Savior. He then begins to speak about God's sovereignty. And he's not speaking about who's saved and who's not saved. He's speaking about God sovereignly chose Abraham. And God chose Abraham and he used Abraham. And we know why his, what his choice is based on. It's reiterated, reiterated multiple times. Based on his foreknowledge. It's not arbitrary sovereignty at work. It's foreknowledgeable sovereignty, if that's, if that's a word. And so he chooses Abraham. And he says that, that through Abraham that I'm going to bless the world. 
And then we're told that Abraham is declared righteous by God because when God comes to Abraham and literally just says, I'm going to bless the world. Sarah's going to have a son and I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abraham literally in the not so King James Version says, okay, okay. And God says, you're right with me because you said, okay, and you trust me to do this. So we're good. You're righteous to me. And so later on, we know a little bit of the history and they go into Egypt and these different things. And then they come out with Moses and the law is given and the law governs a people group. It, it, it governs a nation. It has, it has uh, health laws. Uh, it has uh, sexual laws. It has judicial laws. It has ceremonial laws. This, this huge law that's given to conduct a nation. And also, we know, as we've been reading from Romans, for example, the Ten Commandments and some of these other laws that were in there, they are there to condemn humanity. That's all they can do. The Ten Commandments were told multiple times that can't make anybody righteous. They can't make you right with God. They can't do that. All they can do is show us when they're wrong. But as he continues his talk about sovereignty and that, that Abraham was chosen and then Jacob was chosen over Esau, and we talked in depth about what that means, that Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, we looked at different times where Jesus makes the proclamation that unless you hate your mother and father, you know, in, in comparison to your love to me, you can't be my disciple. And Jesus clearly isn't trying to break the fifth commandment that we ought not to honor our father and mother. He's just saying in a comparison to your love for me and your devotion to me, that comparatively you have hate for your family. He's not telling us to hate our families. And so we have a similar illustration here when in a quote out of Malachi, when God is speaking of two different nations, Jacob and Esau, he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. But we also know that he gave Esau land, that Esau got to inherit, not what Israel was going to be promised, but Esau had a history with God. Later on, it becomes a bad history and the people of Edom become enemies, but that was their decision. But so Israel was perfectly happy with choosing Abraham because they were descendants Israel was perfectly happy with Jacob being chose because they were direct descendants of Jacob. But when it came to Jesus, and they were actually perfectly happy with Pharaoh being raised up, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God solidified that and hardened his heart in his sovereignty. He used Pharaoh's hardened heart, helped him in, in a sense, or solidified that decision, and then used him for his people. And Israel was perfectly fine with that because it meant being expelled from Egypt. Not Originally they weren't excited about that, but they get expelled from Egypt and then they inherit the land through that. And God did that in a sovereign choice. And Paul makes the, makes the question, who would we be to turn back to, the, to the, the potter and say, why did you make me thus? But he's not saying that in a sense of like arbitrary, again, uh, sovereignty that God just says, well, I create this soul, this baby is born, I already know that I'm sending it to hell and it has no legitimate chance of being saved. That's not justice, that's not love. We can't plug our ears and scream sovereignty. It's, it's, it doesn't work that way. And so he says, as the Jews work through the sovereignty that they appreciated, he makes the case there in, in the end of chapter 9 that when Jesus came, that they stumbled over Jesus. Because Jesus offered a righteousness, right? As the Messiah, he offered a righteousness that came by faith. And they, although they were seeking righteousness, the Jews were, they were seeking righteousness by works. In other words, they were trying to achieve righteousness through the law, something that could never deliver it. And so he ultimately, the commentary that God gives in the end of chapter 9 that Paul quotes for us through the Spirit, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But they stumbled over Christ. They rejected him because he, he, he preached a righteousness that is by faith. 
So in chapter 10, Paul continues the same thought. See, these are all based on the fact that God is working all these things. He worked through Abraham, he worked through Jacob, he worked through Pharaoh, and he worked through Jesus. That's what 9 tells us. Now in 10, Paul illustrates, he says, look, I love Israel. He says, and literally in the Greek, it's if I could wish to be accursed, or I could wish to be separated from Christ, if it meant that Israel could be saved. But he's going to go on, and now he's going to talk about what happened with Israel and the fact that they ultimately rejected. And he's going to bring up um, essentially questions or arguments. Chapter 10 is really just a bunch of questions that Paul asks and then answers for us about Israel. So he, he, he begins and he says, look, uh, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. He makes the statement there in verse 4. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And, and this is kind of a standalone verse. And not, not that it's not in the right context, but just this, this simple idea is, is really gone through throughout the entire scripture. And we talked about that idea a lot last week. But see, the Jews, they rejected this idea that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. They never found righteousness or rightness or justification with God because they rejected the Christ who brought it. And he goes on and he talks about, the, you know, Moses talks about uh, Israel and he quotes Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, when the law was given and, and they retracted, Moses told them, it's, you, can, you can trust God. You can actually walk in this law. Now, he's not saying perfectly. We know that. But they are able to obey God and repent and come back to God when they don't, that, that, kind of, that kind of thing. And in the quote that we have in chapter 10, Paul uses that same quote to say they could have followed God back at Sinai or Horeb, it's the same place, but they didn't. And he says, and he's, now he's, he's talking about Jesus, and he's saying, look, the word of faith, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, it's in your mind. It's not difficult. None of us have to say about the word of faith, who's going to bring Christ down to us? You know, we got to do something to make this happen, or, or who's going to you know, uh, come out of the ocean? The ocean is the context in Deuteronomy. He says the deep here. Who's going to come out of the abyss for us? He says, no, 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 there, there's no works in faith. That's not how it works. It's that we just say that, that, that when God speaks to us, we say, yeah, I, I, I want that. I, I'm having a sense of faith, as it were. And so he's challenging the Jews in that point. He's going to go on from that, and he's going to say, look, that the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he quotes scripture again. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is important because when the Bible talks about who can be saved, this is the verbiage it uses. Everyone. Everyone in the Greek is not the elect. It's not chosen. Eklelogem, or whatever, for my poor Greek. It is every person in the cosmos who wants, to, who wants to believe can be saved. This is really important. He's going to go on, and, he's, and as he continues these points, and he says, look, there's no difference between Jew and Greek any, anymore. There's no difference how righteousness comes. And then in verse 14, he starts his arguments. Not arguments like in a bad way, but he starts asking his questions. And so this is, we mentioned this last week, but I think it's worth reiterating. We use this set of verses often, and, and you know, I'm not trying to be rude, to, to talk about why we need gospel preachers. But that's not what's happening here. 
It's fine. We do need gospel preachers. I think we can all say, yes, we need people that are giving other people the word. I don't think there's too many Christians out there going to be like, no, we really need to put an end to the word. It's getting a little old. I don't think we're saying that, right? But that's not what this is saying. Paul is putting arguments about Israel, and he's saying, how could they have heard unless there was somebody who was preaching? And how could there be somebody preaching unless someone sent them, Right? He's making arguments that maybe Israel didn't hear them. Maybe somebody didn't send a preacher or a prophet. Maybe there was some way they didn't hear, and that's why they rejected. That's what he's doing here. But then he answers his own question in verse 18. He says, but I say, or but I ask, have they not heard? And indeed they have. So the, 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 the final portion or the conclusion here to all these questions about being sent and teachers and all these things, it's, it's, it's answered in this. He's saying, no, 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 no. You can't say, did somebody, was somebody not sent? You can't say, did someone not tell them? Because he says, I'm asking, did they hear? And he goes, yeah, they did hear. Are we saying this to pick on Israel? No, we're not saying this to pick on Israel at all. We're just talking about the, the, how the God is working and has in his sovereignty worked all these things out for Gentiles, for Israel, and all sorts of people in between. So he makes the point. He says, look, they heard, and he quotes the Old Testament. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, the prophets, and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? Okay, well, there was somebody that did, that did tell them, but maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe, maybe that was the problem. And he says, did not Israel understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of, of those uh, who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So his first quote is, yeah, they did understand through God working through the Gentiles. Then his second is this, Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So he goes on to say the Gentiles found him. The Gentiles received him. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, remember this is, this is a, a national, uh, these are national prophecy, prophecies. They're to the nation, not necessarily to the individuals. Clearly there were people in Israel that did trust the Messiah, right? The whole church began with 3,000 Jews being saved in at Pentecost, right? So, so we know that some Jews received it. But as a nation of, of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and a contrary people. So God's commentary on the nation of Israel in that time, and really for all time, he's not just literally talking about there was this one day where I just held my hands out the whole day and they said no, so to help them. No, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's giving a, a, a picture, a, 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 uh, an allegory that all their life and all their interactions, God was beckoning them back. And even if we start to look at the curses and these things that were on them, they're always, almost always, in the vein of, I, when you disobey me, these things are going to occur, and then you'll come back to me. So even in the difficulties and in the curses, many of them were as a result to bring them back to him. So when we pick up in chapter 11 and we look at, like, God sovereignly chose these people. God sovereignly is going out to the Jews. Now we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more about the Jews and what's going on there with them. And we're going to talk about how God is sovereignly using the departure in that day, Paul's day, of the Jews from the gospel nationally, how God used that to then include the Gentiles. So really, we're continuing the idea here that God is working all things together for good way back in chapter 8. And now he's just talking about how he's doing that in present day, his present day, and our present day to an extent, Israel, 
and, and is not done with Israel, but is using this time to work things out in the Gentiles. So as we pick up there in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul asks another question, and it's in response to what we just read in chapter 10, verse 21, that, he hold, that God has held his hand out uh, to the disobedient and contrary people. So then Paul asks this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So the response is, well, if he's held his hand out all day long, the entirety of the nation's history, and they've always been obstinate to him, generally speaking, then has God rejected them? Does that mean that he's done with them and, and, and this is over? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite. So just like he's done many times before, he asks the question and then he gives an example. Of course, he says, God is not done with the Jews because I am one. Right? So his first example that God is still working among the Jews or Jews can be saved is his, himself. That he's from the smallest tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, yeah, he's, he, I'm, I'm evidence that he's still working. He says, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now let's stop there for a second. When was the last time we read about foreknowledge? Chapter 8. Right? Why is this important? Why is context and detail important? Because we haven't switched to arbitrary sovereignty. And I'm not, I, I hope you know it. I am not trying to pick on anyone. I'm really not. And our Calvinist brethren, we love them. You know, it's fine. But the reality is that when we, we, we start sifting through this, we can see from the beginning that God's foreknowledge, whether it be Gentiles or Israelis is how God is, is uh, utilizing or the, what do you want to call it, the focus or the lens or the, the uh, uh, vein, whatever word you would like to use, his destiny or his predestination of humanity is based on foreknowledge every single time. And so now he's going to talk about the, the Jews that are getting saved and that have get saved. He's going to use a past example from that. And then he's going to bring it into the present time. But remember, every time we read about elect, and we're going to read that a couple times here, chosen, and oftentimes it's actually the same Greek word as elect, he's always saying the same thing. Election or being chose according to foreknowledge. Foreknowledge of what? Those whom he foreknew that would choose him. The people that he knew would say yes to him, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we read what he's doing with Israel, we don't have to have a freak out and go, oh my goodness, this is just so weird. Evidently, Israel just rebels for 2,000 years and then every last one of them is just saved for no reason. Because if you take that stance, that's what you read. That's what it says. But that's not what's happening. It's God's foreknowledge being worked out from history, you know, past to the forever future. So now we're going to talk about Israelis that come to Christ and that we're walking with God in, in Elijah's day, that we're all according to foreknowledge, that God worked amongst them because they chose him, but he knew that they would chose him, so he worked amongst them. Kind of weird, but that's kind of how it works. So he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You know, in other places, it also tells us, uh, whether we were to turn to Romans 9 or Romans 6, that not all Israel is Israel, right? 
that true Israel are Israelis that sought, even during the, the, the dispensation or the time period of the law, that they sought righteousness with God by faith. In other words, when they brought their sin offerings or their, their, the free will offering or whatever offering they were going to bring, they didn't go, oh man, I'm definitely right with God because I'm slicing the throat or I watched the priest slice the throat of my lamb here. They, they believed and they understood that all these things pointed to Messiah and that ultimately righteousness was always from trusting in God. It's how it always worked. So now he's going to give this example and he says here, Do you not know, in the second part of verse 2, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And we'll stop there for a second. What's the question? I ask then, has God forsaken his people Israel? Right? That's his question. First answer, no. Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I, so clearly he's not done because he saved me. Then he goes on to say, look, God has uh, not rejected his people that he foreknew. The people that he knew would choose him, he hasn't rejected them. And then he gives this story. He says, don't you know about Elijah? And this is actually a, a pretty interesting story. This is, you might be more familiar with the, the what is it, 450? I, I never remember if it's 450 or 450. The prophets of Baal. And it's kind of like the, the showdown at the OK Corral between Elijah and like 450 prophets of Baal. And, and Israel's a little bit conflicted. Is Baal God or is Jehovah God? You know, who is actually the God of Israel? Who's powerful? And, and so you have these kind of, these prophets of Baal, they show up and, they, and, and Elijah challenges them and says, hey, let's do this. You build an altar and I'll build an altar and we'll put sacrifices on it. And whoever's God answers by fire, that's God. And, and whoever doesn't will then, you know, they're milk toast. So they say, hey, you're on. Sounds good. And so they, the, the prophets of Baal, they go first, and they make an altar, and they put a sacrifice on it, and they start dancing around it, and they're calling to Baal to, to uh, um, call down fire. Just as a side note, Baal is kind of a generic term, Lord or, or God, uh, essentially, and there, were, there was Baal all over the place. So they were like localized Baals, as weird as that sounds. So, <laughs> so this particular, uh, it, it, this particular you know, uh, God that they're worshiping with the name Baal may not be the same as, say, like the Amorites or something like that. They all kind of had individual. Um, it's actually really interesting. If you like reading about history and that kind of stuff, it wasn't until the Greeks come where individualized and localized gods kind of get thrown away because the Greeks kill everyone. And they're just like, oh, wow, yeah, your God doesn't rely on locality to be victorious. Anyway, we extremely digress. I'm sorry for that. So they dance around, and it doesn't happen. And, and so Elijah, you know, I don't know if we, I, don't, I probably wouldn't do this, but Elijah's probably better than me. But he starts making fun of them, and he, he literally tells them, he goes, hey, maybe your God's using the bathroom somewhere, and he, so he's not able to answer you. Um, and, and so they, they begin to cut themselves on their heads and bleed and use the blood and so forth. And, and it goes like eight hours, something to that effect goes by, and they don't, they never, there's no fire. Surprise. There's no fire. 
And so Elijah basically steps up and he says, hey, why don't you dig a trench around that for me and, and his, his altar and the offering? And he says, okay, great. Now why don't you pour water uh, on that altar? Which you're like, we're in the middle of the desert, dude. Why are you wasting water? But whatever, you know, he pours the water on it, pours the water around the basin. And, and then he's literally just, I mean, this is the abbreviated version, but basically says, hey, God, would you please pour your fire on this thing so that you can show everybody that you're God? And it's like, torch comes down. And it, it, it takes all the water, it takes, all, it takes everything. The sacrifice, the wood, is gone. It's just torched sand is all that's left. And so the Israelites that are there are like, oh, wow, okay, Jehovah's legit. And what they do is they, they basically rush the prophets of Baal, they kill them all, and uh, Elijah leaves. And he panics, which is interesting. This, uh, it, this is a whole other sermon. But it's interesting how right after incredible victories in our life that we can get so reserved and so concerned about things. But anyway, that's what happens to him. He runs away, and uh, a messenger comes um, from Jezebel, and she says, ah, funny story. Uh, what you did to my prophets, I'm going to do to you, but worse, by tomorrow. And so he runs, and he hides under this juniper bush, and he, and he says, I, I alone am it. I'm it. I'm the only one who's following God in all of Israel. And, uh, and God says, no, 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 that's, that's not the case. Appears to him and says, no, there's, there's 7,000. Which, and we've talked about this before, is, but that's, that's not really great. Because you're talking about millions of Jews. Two to three million Jews at this time. And there's 7,000 men. Now, we don't know what that means as far as women and children with that, but there's only 7,000 men out of millions of people that haven't chosen to serve, or attempt to serve anyway, Baal. And so, but, but there's this, exchange here that Paul now is writing for us as evidence that there was, there was a remnant and that God had saved these people, that they were righteous with him, not because they did the law, right? We know that. Nobody is saying that anybody in any dispensation, at any time, at any point, has ever been right with God because they accomplished the law. It's never happened. They were right with God because they had trusted him for the promises that they had given Israel. And so when it came time where it was like, hey, Baal seems to be pretty powerful in these areas. Uh, why don't we go down to the local Baal shop and we'll get one for our house and we can light some stuff and put some bananas in front of it, you know, or whatever. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to walk with Jehovah and, and, and his law and what he has. So he says there's 7,000 of those people. And Paul says, look, there's an example here that's important, and that is that God has never forsaken his people. Even in one of their deepest, darkest times in their history of Baal worship, he didn't forsake them. He didn't leave them. And, and there was always a remnant. And he goes on to say, so too, verse 5, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Well, we don't have a problem with that, right? Because he doesn't say that he randomly predestined 7,000 people and took away their free will so they couldn't worship Baal. And then he said, these are my good people. It says that the people that were chosen, they were chosen by grace. But how were they chosen? By foreknowledge. Because it tells us that. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the 7,000 people were not just arbitrarily elected to not worship Baal and be robbed of their free will. They were 7,000 people that God foreknew before he even gave the law, before Abraham even received the promise, before let there be light was ever said. He knew that they would be there. 
And he, would knew, he knew that he would use them in Israel's history to continue the lineage. So we don't have a problem that it was by grace. He's just making the point. These were not extra good Jews. It was not by works. They didn't, they didn't always have the perfect uh, lamb to sacrifice. They didn't always, you know, it, it, that wasn't the issue. The issue was they were trusting and walking with God in the law, in the dispensation, but they approached it by faith. And so by faith, they're, they're able to experience God's grace and they got saved. That's what we see. Remember, previously, who did he talk about? David, right? There was no sacrifice for taking another man's wife and then having him killed along with a bunch of other people to do it. There was, that's not in the law somewhere. If thou takest a wife and killest the husband, thou shalt bring a rabbit. That's not in there. There's no sacrifice for that. The sacrifice for that, honestly, was you. You got killed if you did something like that. And yet David was forgiven. And he writes a psalm about it. It's very interesting. It kind of messes with us, I think, because we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But the law. Yeah, the law. The law demonstrated we could never be what God created us to be without Christ, without righteousness. That's what the law did. So he's saying, look, Israel, God is not done with Israel. Verse 7, so now he's going to ask another question. What then? Israel failed to obtain. So what's the result of this? Or what's the end of this? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So he says, the end of his point is this. Israel failed. What was it seeking? And we, we covered this a little bit in, in chapter 10. What was Israel seeking? Righteousness. But they were seeking their own righteousness, just like we do. I mean, we're not like picking on Israel, right? We do that. We find things that we're good at or we find things that we're successful at or when we are successful in our walk with the Lord and, and we claim our own righteousness. We wouldn't do that out loud. You're not going to walk into church and be like, everybody, I'm right with God because, frankly, I'm a good person. I mean, some of us might do that, unfortunately. But realistically, we know we can't say that out loud because everybody's going to be like, really, that's funny because I thought we were all here because of the blood of Jesus. But in our minds, we go, oh, man, I had a good week. I mean, I'm talking like devotions, like four or five of the work days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes pushing like, you know, 15-minute kind of devotions. Like, we're not talking like Max Lucado here. We're talking like Spurgeon kind of thing. You know what I mean? We'll, we'll kind of come up with stuff where we're like, no, I'm super legit because. And even though we don't say it out loud, we, you know, we do. But that's what Israel did. They stumbled over Christ whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, they stumbled over the Messiah that takes away the sin of the world and they sought their own righteousness and they tried to do it with works and so they missed out. But then he says the elect, the elect of who? The elect of Israel. How were they elected? By foreknowledge. God knew them intrinsically, gnosko, that intimate friendship knowledge that they would choose him. So he gave them a destiny. And that destiny was to be conforming to their in, image of his son, even though uh, pre-Jesus, they didn't know who that would be or how it would work out. But now they did, now when, in Paul's day, they do. And so the elect received it. They were elected because they chose God. It's pretty, it doesn't have to be scary. So now what about this other part? Where he says, Israel failed to attain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. You go, aha! See, look, he hardened all the other Israelis' hearts. Well, yeah, he did. And Paul's going to tell us how it happened. 
Verse 8, as it is written, so he's going to quote, this is out of Isaiah 29, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So the first thing, that, the, the first quote that we have from Isaiah is God speaking to Israel from Isaiah, or about Israel, I should say, and it says that he gave them a spirit of stupor. But if we were to go back, and I would encourage you to do that, if you were to go back and read all of Isaiah 29, not just the one verse, but all of it, even if you just read, in this case, the one verse, it becomes very clear he gave the prophets a spirit of stupor. And he blinded the prophet's eyes. So Paul quotes Isaiah 29 and he says that Israel was blinded. But the point is, the people that were blinded by God at that point were the prophets. That's what Isaiah says. And so the, the people, God retracted in that time, in that place, from the people of God, from Israel. And he stopped speaking to Israel. And he stopped giving revelation to Israel because they weren't responding to it. So at that point, he then darkened their eyes. He no longer spoke or revealed himself to the prophets. And Israel continued in their disobedience, but not the elect. The elect whom he foreknew, the chosen. And then he predestined to give them a destiny to be confirmed in, into the image of their Messiah. Does that make sense? He's going to give us a second one here. Verse 9, and David says, so now he's going to quote verse 69. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So David, now in Psalm 69, uh, it's two verses that they quote. And it's really, it's a psalm, if you were to go back and read it, it's about David's suffering. It's very similar to Jesus in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of people uh, and I would say rightly point to it as a kind of a messianic psalm that is kind of prophetic of what Jesus would go through and things he would experience. But in this case, there's been wrong done to David by uh, others. And he says, and it seems to be Jesus kind of mirroring Jesus. He says, let their table become a snare and a trap. Now, the table universally or in, in Israeli or even Middle Eastern terms, what is it? It's a place of provision, Right. It's where you eat. It's the place of blessing. It's the place of fellowship. So David's pronouncement upon them is this. Let the table, let all the goodness that you give them, instead let it be a snare to them. And a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. In other words, don't let provision be their blessing anymore. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So he quotes David, and remember, what's the point that he's quoting David over? That Israel was, did not receive righteousness from God because they sought it with works, and they rejected the Messiah. So the response in, that, that they were hardened, these are the, 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 the quotes that Paul is giving us to show that when they did this, and this is at a specific time in a specific place, and now since Jesus came, which remember we, we saw that time period because he said at the end of chapter 10, I'm trying to make this as clear as I can. So these are Old Testament scriptures talking about Old Testament events and times that directly pertain to Israel. And now Paul is taking them now and saying, look, the same thing is happening again, only it's with Christ himself. Does that make sense? And so as Paul quotes these, he's saying, look, they were hardened. God stopped speaking to them through the prophets. 
and they went their own way. And the comparison he's making now is as we go on in verse 11 is that the same thing is happening, but God is using it for good for the Gentiles' sake. That's what 11 through the end of this is, that Israel in the past rejected God and God let it happen. That God had promises for Israel and they will still come true. And now in the present day, Israel as a nation, not individuals because there's a remnant, but as a nation has now rejected in Paul's day, Jesus. And now Paul's going to go into the fact and say, God is going to use that rejection and allow them to, to kind of walk in that unbelief so that he can now work in the life of the Gentiles. And so now as the, he works with the Gentiles, eventually that day will end with the rapture of the church and he will again begin to work in Israel as a nation, not on an individual basis. Does that make sense? So as we jump in here to verse 11, he says, So I ask, so another question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So this is the beginning of Paul's point that God is using everything for good for Gentiles and for Israel. He's just showing how God's working all these things out through all time. So he asked the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And some of your Bibles may say that they might fall forever. And, and the reason the word forever there is because the word fall, it's, in, uh, it's actually used in other places uh, in the New Testament. It's a really fun word. It's like pipito or something like that. But it's, uh, it, it's, this is in the uh, aorist active. And you go, why does that matter? Because the way the, the tense is working is that it's something that happens literally like a, a snapshot in history, the fall happened, but it's active, meaning they continue to stay fallen. Does that make sense? So if you have an English Bible and it's translated fall forever, that's where they get that from. The idea is, he's not asking, hey, did they have a rough day and fall, and now they're just going to stay? No, he's literally asking, did Israel's fall or their sin result in them forever being fallen? Does that make sense? That's the question he's asking. And then he says, no, no, that's, that, of course not. And, and as he answers no, he goes on to say that by no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make uh, Israel jealous. Now, is he saying that if Israel had received Jesus, that the Gentiles would have never been saved? No, he's not saying that. That's not congruent. That doesn't fit with the entire Old Testament or New Testament. Gentiles were always welcome in Israel, right? The Gentiles, there was whole laws that were set on. Even if you didn't become an Israelite, you could live among the Israelites. You still had to follow certain laws. Like if you busted your ball out and did a little worship, you'd get killed. But you could still live there, right? You didn't have to show up at the temple. You didn't have to, there were laws that were about that regarded how you could live alongside Israel and how they were to treat you. There were laws based on if you were, say, an Amorite, and you're like, hey, uh, I see that you're slaughtering everybody in your path and that Jehovah is powerful, and I'm really on board with Jehovah because this all guy's not working out for me. So can I, can I follow you, me and my family? We'd really love to be involved with what's going on here and not die. And, and there were laws about that. Like, yes, you can come in. 
You can, you know, there are areas of the, of the tabernacle you could not go, but you would be considered a follower of Jehovah. You were a saved person by faith from any nation in the world. It, could, it always worked that way. There were always laws that were, were uh, geared towards that for the Gentile, okay? Um, the, the beginning of the church, there were many Gentiles, all those things. So he's not saying that if Israel hadn't fallen, that the, the, the Gentiles could have never been saved because it was always in God's plan that at any time, any Gentile, anywhere could come, whether it was Old Covenant or New Covenant. So now to try to seal it off and say, well, you know, if Israel had just been you know, solid, then the rest of you guys, I would have neglected you. That's just not, that's not a, a biblical idea. But the point that he's making, and he's actually going to talk about his own ministry, is that in this time, in this place, because the, the, the Israelis rejected him, generally speaking, right, nationally, because they eventually rejected Jesus more and more and more after the church was born uh, there in, in Jerusalem, basically of almost all Jews. I mean, we don't know an exact number, but they were all there for the Feast of Pentecost. So the, the reason that Jerusalem was swelling was so big because uh, Jerusalem normally is about 15,000 people, they estimate, in Jesus' day. Uh, you know, when we think of a big city, I don't know about you, I'm from Southern California, I think like going to L.A. where it's like 3 million in the area. And, I, and so when, when I read something in the Bible and it's like the, the city was packed, I'm like, oh, it was like downtown L.A. Not, not really. It was 15,000 people. Um, you know, it's interesting because Nazareth and Jesus' birth, they estimate to be about 400 people. But uh, based on the graves that they found at Nazareth, the digs and so forth. Uh, so it kind of gives you a perspective of, of how many, uh, what, what populace was like in, in, in those days. It's not like here uh, so much. Anyway, uh, all that to say, he's going to talk about his ministry. He's talking about all these things. And what's, what's going to happen, because he makes the point in verse 13, that in this time, in this place, that the, the, uh, uh, since the Jews begin to reject and persecute the gospel, he stops talking to them. Right, Three times in the book of Acts. Three times, whether it's in Ephesus, these different places, Paul shows up. Where does he go? The synagogue. Right, Every time. Goes to the synagogue. He talks in there for like a week or two, depending how long they'll have him in the synagogue. And eventually, it, and it's always almost the same point. It's almost always the same point. As soon as he says that God has invited the Gentiles too, they're like, you have to die. We're going to kill you now. We were kind of into this Jesus thing. We were, we were willing to listen to the resurrection. We didn't know if we were super bought into it. But as soon as you say that God's going to save the Gentiles, immediately they say, we're going to kill you. Why? Why do they say that? Why is it the, the, the biggest hang-up that they have isn't the resurrection? We're not talking about the Pharisees now. We're talking about Judaism in general. It's not the resurrection. It's not that the Messiah could have come. It's when Paul says Gentiles can get saved. Why is that the deal-breaker? Why is that, when he, even, even in his Jesus' ministry, when he mentions Naaman being the only leper that was cleansed in the Old Covenant, and they're like, we're going to kill you now? Because Jews, especially leading up to Jesus, for the last 800 years before Jesus, basically got raped and pillaged, literally, by every nation that came by. By the Romans, by Greeks, everyone. And so to a Jew, the idea who had, who had I mean, they're still under Roman rule, right? They're, they, they, their prisoners go to Rome. Rome executes their prisoners. 
Rome decides who's going to be the high priest. You ever wonder why is there two high priests in the New Testament? Caiaphas and uh, a Cameron's Ananias. Why is there two? Because one is a political appointee from Rome because he bid enough money to get it. And the other one is basically who, is who Jews want it to be. I mean, for lack of a better term. So they're controlled every portion of their life. I think I mentioned this before. Uh, you know, my wife and I started watching The Chosen. It's a fine show. It's great. But there's this one part. I just chuckled because there's this one part in The Chosen where Mary Magdalene's like walking down the street. And in the background, you see one of the Roman guards like edge around her and then keep walking. No, 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 my friends. He would have kicked her in the chest and shoved her down. That's how the Romans ruled. This is during Pilate's reign. Remember how Jesus brings up the fact that Pilate mixed the blood of Jews with pigs and then sacrificed to one of their gods? So historically, for the idea that one of these pig-raising, pig-blood-having people who've dominated them for eight centuries, different cultures, could just believe on Messiah and have the same gift and calling that they did, they couldn't, they couldn't buy into it. They just, they, just, they just couldn't be. And so every time it gets brought up, they reject that. And they go, no, we're not going to have any part of this. They sought a righteousness, and they never attained it because they sought it by works. Now, these are all parallels for us. We have to be careful as a church, don't we? Because we can be right there with them. We can clean ourselves up a little bit and then be like, oh, I can't believe you really like that. Oh, I don't want to deal with this. Right? We can think that way. And we can say, we can, like, there's just no way, like, really? You think you're going to come into my church? Like, I saw you last week. I know how you act. This, this isn't a unique to the Jews. This is just humanity, how we respond when we seek our own righteousness. So what happens is Paul then, every single time he's in the, he leaves, and where does he go? He goes to the Gentiles. And he preaches the gospel. So, we're running out of time here. We're not going to kind of go into the rest of this, but it's important to understand as we, as we look at and as we cover God working all these things for good, right? In the Jews, in the Gentiles, it's not, he's not making these kind of blanket statements that there's this arbitrary sovereignty occurring. It's based on the foreknowledge of who would choose him. And for those people that would choose him, he gave a destiny. And now he's working everything together for good for those people that he called that love him and now are every aspect of their lives and every, you know, thing, uh, sphere of authority, every uh, difficulty, every whatever it might be, he's working that together to good for them. And in this case, in Paul's day, in Paul's time, the, the Gentiles began to hear the gospel because the, the Jews rejected it. And it's very, I don't know, physically doesn't sound right, but it's, it's very just simple and physical. Hey, I'm going to the synagogue. Get out of here. We're going to kill you. Okay, cool. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Right? That's how it worked. And now we, if we look at Israel today and, and where they're at today, are there Israelis getting saved? Yeah. Yeah, there are, right? Well, there's missionaries over in Israel, and they're doing Bible studies, and, and people are getting saved. But as a nation, are they embracing Messiah? No, they're not embracing Messiah. Not even a little bit. But one day, and this is what we'll talk about next week, one day God will work in them and those whom he foreknew will receive him. But it will be on a much larger level 
because there'll be, I mean, in my opinion, because, for example, there will be a revelation of who he is, again, for them. That all his promises and all the things he said in the Old Covenant, all the promises about peace in Jerusalem, all the promises about reigning on the earth, all the promises of... And, and if you look at the promises of God primarily to the Jews, they were physical, right? If, if you walk with me, then you'll have a lot of cows. Your cows won't get sick. You're... you're uh, I don't, I'm not a rancher, so I don't know what woman cows are, but you know, your female cows will have calves or whatever. They'll, they'll have healthy babies. You'll have healthy babies, you're, you'll have a lot of crops, right? Those were kind of, the, those were kind of the, the, the promises to Israel, along with peace and these type of things. Interesting that the church doesn't really get any of those promises, do they? Our promises are way more like there were people that walked around naked and lived in caves and were tortured and they suffered and they wouldn't take a deliverance to for, by forsaking Jesus. Those people the world wasn't worthy of. We get way more promises, way less promises we, God will provide for us, right? He says, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about the food you're going to eat. We don't get a lot of, of like, hey, everything's going to be amazing for you. We kind of get more the opposite. Like, chances are you're really going to suffer a lot. <laughs> and then after that comes glory with Christ. Whereas the old covenant promises are all like, hey, you don't have to suffer. You can have amazing land and property and tons of cows and goats and all that. So it's kind of interesting how the, the two covenants have worked out. But all those promises of old will someday be accomplished in the millennial reign. And God is going to begin working on, with the Jews again during the last week of Daniel. And, and when we see um, the revelation and the different things that are happening, whether it's from angels or the two prophets in Israel or these different things, they're going to be coming about. So and, and persecution from the dragon, all these different things. So we'll, we'll stop there for today. It's kind of got a, a taste of what's coming for next week, but that's the time that we have. So where do we go with this? Well, just to be repetitive, I guess, we go here. That God is working all things together for good for you. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's a lot of really crummy things that happen in this life, even if you're not, right? And that's Okay. Because we don't live for this life. There's tons of stuff. I bet if we went around the room, we could say, I wish this was different. I wish that was different. I wish this was different about me. Or I wish this was different about them. Right? I wish this was... It just is what it is. But the reality is that in all the brokenness and all the craziness and all the goodness, God's working it together for good for you. So you can go out of here with peace and with confidence that even though you're going to suffer and hard things are going to happen in your life, that as we let it, God will let it produce faith and patience and kindness. It's amazing what kind of kindness you have for other people when you realize how horrible you are, right? Because you go, oh, I'm, I'm pretty much trash sometimes, so I can be nice to this person who's being trash right now. It's amazing how kind we can be when we realize how kind God's been to us. When we go through hard times when we realize, wow, he was with me the whole time. Maybe I can show kindness to somebody else who's going through a hard time. And then ultimately, he says, we'll be with him in glory. I don't know what that'll be like. It'll be pretty wild, I think. He says that we'll know as we are known. You ever thought about that? We'll know as much and as broad a scope as God knows us. I feel like he knows a lot about us. And it seems like if I'm going to get that kind of knowledge and we're going to have that kind of knowledge about him and ourselves, 
that's going to produce a pretty radical platonic intimacy in kind of a heavenly global sense, right? Just this unilateral understanding of, of one another and what God has done for us. And then you mix that in with the fact that it says, and this is really cool to me, that every tongue and tribe and nation is singing. And you just think like, oh, we're not like a bunch of marshmallow cherubs on clouds with bows for some reason. But we're, you, you know, whatever your race and nation is, you'll be that in heaven. To think that we'll retain certain portions of this earth, that, that there'll be Swahili worship songs going on while there's English ones. That, that John says, I heard every language being sang. Because I don't know about you, but for a long time, I had the idea that heaven was like uniformity. That it's like you just kind of get saved and then we'll all be there in like these white robes and somehow Jesus will be there and we'll all just be like, I don't know, we'll all look like Gandalf the Grey or something, just like <laughs> singing worship songs. But to realize that, no, well, you'll be who you are. You'll look like you. But you'll have a knowledge of God and others, and they'll have that knowledge of you in love and in kindness. You'll feel home. You'll feel safe. You'll feel secure. You'll feel peace. Like you've never felt it before with everybody else around you. There's not that weird uncle like raging in the corner, making everybody feel uncomfortable, right? <laughs> you'll be set. So go out of here and rest, my friends. God loves you. And he's working everything out for you. And don't be surprised when it sucks along the way. But just know that he's working that out for good. Father, we thank you that we can trust you and that you're good and kind to us. Lord, where would we be without you? We say like David, who is like unto you? Who is, who is mighty like you? Where we say, where we would say also that we look to the hills, but from whence comes our help? Our help is from the Lord. And we thank you that you've been with us this whole way. You've always been kind to us. You've always provided for us. Lord, any lack we've ever experienced, we acknowledge. We brought that on ourselves. But Lord, you're, you're God and you're wonderful. And we just ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts and revive us. Lord, that as we walk out of this place, that your spirit would abide upon us and that we would be open to your will. We'd be open to tell others. We'd be open to be about your kingdom, to share the, the good news that you have for uh, folks. And Lord, I pray that the gospel would be um, just on our hearts, on our tongues, and that we would be kind people uh, trying to help broken people. And so we just commit our hearts to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.